Hello everyone and welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of the Politics, People and Place podcast. In today's episode, we are joined by our host and presenter of the State of the Union podcast as part of the DMU Politics, People and Place podcast, Cloda Harrington. She's joined by guest academic speaker, Andrew Rivalevich and Associate Professor Alex Wadden as they examine how Biden's administration has been doing so far and the state of the current union. Okay, so welcome everybody to our US politics podcast, which is uh, part of the DMU politics, people and place departmental series. Um, my guest academic speakers today are Professor Andrew Rudolevich from Bowdoin University in Maine in the United States. So good morning, Andy. And Associate you. Professor Alex Wadden from down the road at Leicester University. So good afternoon, Alex. Um, I'm just going to say a, a, a very quick uh, nod to, to, to the research interests of, of my two guests um, and also just a clarification point that our third invited guest, uh, Professor Eddie Ashby from Copenhagen Business School, has unfortunately been struck down with, guess what, COVID, which we're very sorry about to, to miss his presence, but also very importantly to make sure that he is uh, better and has a speedy and full recovery as soon as possible. Um, so Andy's latest book, which is still, I think, pretty hot off the press, uh, very recent, and I have a copy on my bookshelves. Um, it's by executive order bureaucratic management and the limits of presidential power, which fits really very nicely with our topic of the presidency today and how Biden has managed his role, or some would say mismanaged his role in powers to date. Um, Alex's most recent monograph is uh, snappily entitled Obama versus Trump, the politics of presidential rollback, uh, also a very recent offering, and an, an exciting and affordable development will be coming out in paperback in May 2022. So now is the time to start placing your orders. Um, so our plan today really is to start or to try anyway and push back, push past the news headlines and have a look at how Biden has actually been faring, how his administration has been faring to date, both in terms of the style and the substance. So that's achievements, um, a campaign promise delivery, um, and sort of public perceptions of how he's done, because that last point is probably really these days almost almost as important as the actual um, achievements themselves. And then just to maybe get some reflections from our our guests on um, what, how 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 things are, the, the state of the nation. It's it's pretty fractured, I think, by by any measure. Um, so the episode is hosted by me, Cloda Harrington. I'm associate professor of American politics here at DMU, and it is produced by the legendary Jemima Duodu, my departmental colleague, um, and is being recorded on the third of February, 2022. So. The structure today is we're going to talk about President Biden's first year um, and our content is largely based on questions gathered from our very own DMU students over the past couple of weeks. Um, so I've tried to blend and fold many of the questions in to sort of have a, a, a kind of a fluid conversation. So it's not going to be a case of asking, you know, 30 questions to my my two guests. It's more a kind of a conversation that will hopefully cover uh, most of what was raised. And I'd like to thank uh, Jemima Duodu and James Kendrick for doing a fantastic job in calling for the student questions via social media platforms and other um, other ways which were far, far beyond me. I just asked people to email me. So anyway, without further ado, we will make a start and I'm going to begin by asking our two guests to just maybe give a few opening sentences, I suppose, um, with regard to their perception of how Biden's first year has gone. So I suppose maybe if we start with the US-based perspective, and then we'll go to the uh, the, the view from abroad. So Andy, w w what are your thoughts just briefly to begin with? Yeah, I think uh, the Biden first year is in a way uh, a tale of two years, right? A game of two halves, as the uh, football cliche might go. Uh, the administration started out very strongly, I think, uh, despite the efforts by the outgoing administration to hamper that transition uh, in lots of different ways, bureaucratically, but of course also uh, via the uh, January 6th insurrection. And then as the uh, year wore on and some unexpected turbulence hit the Biden administration in the form of different COVID variants, in the form of a very messy uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, in the form of unexpected levels of inflation, you know, it's been more of a stalemate, I think, over the, uh, certainly from the summer till now, uh, you know, I think there's reasons for Biden and his team to be optimistic as we move into 2022, but I do think there's a certain uh, sense of um, 
that he has not lived up to people's granted very high expectations over the course of the first year. And you see that reflected uh, in his public approval ratings, which are sort of in the low to mid 40 percent right now. Yeah, OK, that's great. Thank you so much. So, so Alex, wh wh where are you with 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 this? Yeah, I mean, uh, Andy stolen my analogy of the, the game of two halves. Um, and I guess, unfortunately for the administration, it's been the second half which has gone awry. And that's what people tend to remember at this point. Um, certainly a, a promising start has, has, has deteriorated into um, uh, quite a problematic few months now. And, and, you, and actually, there's a you know, you can track that in the approval disapproval ratings, which I think uh, go underwater, so to speak, where disapproval starts to outnumber approval at the end of August 2021 and, and, and hasn't recovered. Um, uh, Biden's current number, I think, is sort of like one point better than Trump's number at the same point in, in uh, the cycle. So um, not the worst, but um, equally uh, somewhat. Uh, somewhat troublesome and uh it's at the moment i'd say it's a little bit difficult I mean, we, we, we can examine this further but i think it's it's a little bit difficult to see how things get back on track at least uh anytime particularly quickly okay that's great thank you i think that's gotten us off to a, a kind of a a, a thought-provoking start. I'm pretty measured as well, I think. You know, neither of you have kind of steamed in there and gone, oh, it's all been a disaster or or, or, or pretended that's every, that everything's perfect. I think it's, it, as you say, it's 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 been complex and also the, 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 the kind of the levels of stratospheric expectation and hope are always going to be, be difficult to, to live up to no matter, you know, who you are. Um, I wonder, um, I suppose, Andy, the very first thing you mentioned there was COVID, and I suppose in a way that's that's a kind of a, an obvious place to start. I'm mindful that people are kind of tired of it and tired of talking <laughs> about it, but nonetheless, you know, it was a major, major campaign issue. It was a major national issue on on every obvious level, um, and you know, Biden's coming in uh, uh, last year uh, on the tale of of really i guess what what one might call you know a kind of a catastrophic failure of governance by by his predecessor by by most measures and and that's not dismissing some of the achievements that happened on the trump watch but the kind of the chaos and the the, the misinformation and and the fear and the diminishment of public trust etc you know all did happen very clearly in in that previous year um so biden comes in in january 2021 he's got his covid beating national strategy it sounds like he is a man with the plan he is you know it's science-based it's rational it's logical he's got a impressive team around him etc um and then it's kind of like a case of events dear boy events you know that you know <laughs> one couldn't exactly have predicted the known unknowns if you like of um you know the the the, the new variants that that come about so i wonder maybe just andy first to you as you, you're kind of there you know uh, experiencing it as, as a citizen as well as a scholar um how much blame or what blame at all can we sort of put on on the administration for how things have gone in terms of COVID management or is it all beyond his control? I don't think it is all beyond his control. Uh, you know, you uh, alluded to the polarization in the US uh, surrounding all issues COVID at this point. Uh, up here in Maine in the upper northeast corner of the United States, uh, we have been uh, relatively spared uh but again that doesn't mean that the absolute numbers haven't been quite terrible relative you know even with a small population uh you know this last wave of the omicron variant has uh you know really tested the public health system here um but if you were to go to florida texas states that have had a different style of leadership and and you know let's be honest different party of leadership uh they have had, you know, they've taken a different approach, one that's been much more acceptance, frankly, of just, you know, let's everybody get sick and get it over with uh, kind of take. So, again, depending where you are in the country, you're going to have a different opinion, perhaps, of how things have gone. You know, when the Biden administration came in, as you say, they, they had a plan. He had run on sort of being, you know, the boring, competent guy who had a lot of experience in government. Uh, you know, even Trump couldn't come up with a particularly insulting nickname. He called him Sleepy Joe, which actually, frankly, after four years of Trump, sounded wonderful. Uh, and so, you know, he comes in, he appoints a COVID czar, this guy, Jeff Zients, who's been, you know, a management specialist in the private and public sectors. He saved uh, healthcare.gov a few years ago uh, from technological oblivion. And so he's going to run the COVID program. Uh, and 
to a degree that worked, right? Things got back on one page, which had not, certainly not been the case. If you read any of the accounts of the Trump administration, there's a lot less backbiting. Uh, it's beginning to emerge again now, interestingly, between the different public health agencies. Uh, but, you know, back in January, February, March, you're uh, finally getting uh, a organized rollout of the vaccine, right? And so the one thing the Trump administration did well, uh, and maybe, you know, this wasn't hard to do, but pumping a lot of money into vaccine development, right? And in all kinds, you know, they spread it across different pharmaceutical companies. I mean, it was a lot of cash, but it worked, right? A vaccine was developed quickly. Multiple vaccines developed quickly. They work. Uh, and the Biden administration is able to get that rolled out. And so uh, the people who want the vaccine can get it pretty quickly. And by, say, May or June, we're in a pretty good place in that regard. Uh, you know, we've got a pretty good vaccination rate. Uh, people are able to get vaccines. Now you can argue that, you know, in a way we've you know, hoarded them, that we should have been vaccinating the world at the same time. We certainly didn't do that. Uh, but a lot, but basically all the Biden administration's bets were on the vaccine and the vaccine was going to solve things. And if we could just get that rolled out properly, all would be well. Uh, well, that works until you get the variants, right? And then you get Delta and then you get later, of course, Omicron. And that, uh, you know, the ability, especially of the latter to to sort of push through vaccines and to infect people, even if not as seriously to, to infect people who are already vaccinated in some cases, uh, have three doses of the vaccine in their arms. And then um, combined with, you know, sort of the failure to get everybody vaccinated, right? So we got everybody who wanted to be vaccinated, vaccinated, I think, on the whole. Uh, but there is this persistent minority of people who either think it's uh, some sort of weird government conspiracy, who would rather uh, drink their own urine, I'm actually quite serious about this, than take the vaccine. Uh, you know, it's a very odd uh, sort of weird combination. Few people on the far left, mostly on the Trumpist right, uh, to the point that even when Donald Trump uh, you know, praise the vaccines, because after all, mm -hmm. his administration did produce them uh, and he wants credit for that. Even when he praised the vaccines, he's been booed. He's been attacked by, you know, people who see him as having betrayed his own base by uh, being optimistic. So it's become sort of an identity politics issue in its own right. And that means, you know, that there's going to be this persistence of, you know, people getting affected. You can track death rates, hospitalization rates, uh, with very high correlation with counties that voted heavily for Donald Trump in 2020 versus Joe Biden. Um, so the Biden administration took to calling it a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And again, that had some bite, but then with Omicron, you know, even that has sort of faded away because people who are vaccinated have gotten it. And that's meant that the public health agencies like the Centers for Disease Control have been really struggling to keep up with the guidance. You know, they shortened the days that you have to be isolated. And that seemed maybe that was a good piece of scientific advice, but it seemed pretty expedient given how many people were out of work. And suddenly, you know, thousands of flights are canceled because people have to be away from work for 10 days. Well, oh, how about five days? Maybe that'll work, right? And so that's been... I think another area where the Biden administration has had some issues in terms of uh, once we got past the vaccines being the answer, you know, there hadn't been any real effort placed in, you know, produ mass producing rapid tests. We ran out of those on the shelves in December as people got freaked out about Omicron. Uh, you know, masks, you know, became again sort of a, a new normal in a lot of places, but there weren't enough high quality masks either. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're at a place where you've got one part of the population that doesn't actually care about COVID, maybe still can't quite believe it's real. Uh, another part that's kind of vaxxed and relaxed. I don't know if that's a phrase in the UK yet, but the sort of vaxxed and relaxed crowd uh, I think who's just kind of sick of it and saying, well, I'm vaccinated. I'm not going to die of it. Let's just move on. And then you also have a, a group that is still extraordinarily frightened of it, uh, either because they have, uh, you know, loved ones who are vulnerable uh, or because there's a certain weird left-wing virtue signaling over here about being really concerned about COVID even now. Um, you know, all of that together means we're kind of in a weird place. And until this particular wave breaks, I don't think we'll push through that. Sorry to go on so long, but. Well, no, that's just absolutely super duper comprehensive. Thank you. And I think it's a really important, um, you know, topic to, to at least begin with, if not spend all our time on just because it's 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 the glasses through which so much 
else is actually viewed these days and and maybe possibly one might argue it still weighs down you know the administration it takes up the political bandwidth it 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 sucks up time and money and energy and um, you know column inches and all of that and 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 then the other stuff of of running the country and and keeping things going is 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 kind of reduced accordingly alex i we'll move on in a moment from um a pandemic management and that but i just wondered um what your thoughts are with regard to you know the kind of the, the 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 damage in public trust that happened on on trump's watch in terms of i mean it was already kind of uh, fragile and then you have a, a you know a clobbering pandemic at a time when you know what you desperately need is clear concise and sort of um uh, confidence inspiring leadership and and you I think by any measure, really, one doesn't really tend to get that from Trump. Um, is that something, is, is Biden still feeling that pain? So do you think the kind of the, the, the breach of public trust, like only one half of the country is ever going to listen to what he has to say? And even they're getting, as as Andy says, you know, a bit jaded. Yeah, I've, I've, that's, uh, I'm, it's not just a Trump legacy. I think the fracture in American politics can be dated back a, a bit further than that, but clearly was exacerbated uh, during the, the, the Trump years and particularly with re, with regards to how seriously to take the pandemic. I think, as, as Andy pointed out, one of the ironies is that um, Trump has, if not hugely volubly uh, recommended that people do get vaccinated um but that's one of the one of his messages which goes down badly uh when he's when he's speaking to his crowd so there's a there's a sort of perverse irony there from from his perspective and it makes it harder for him to claim credit for the sort of operation warp speed and and the you know the the the, the effort that there was to, to get a vaccine done you know super quick it's certainly in terms of the normal time span for getting the vaccine uh, tested and and, in, on, and and into production, so yes, I think that's uh, the, uh, the legacy of, of the Trump years. Which I think, in in a sense, of Biden, as Andy said, the, 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 the I think the working assumption, probably not just in the US, was going into the end of 2020 and the, into 2021, was that we would the vaccines would actually clean, clear things up pretty quickly. We'd be able to get back to pretty normal economic activity and social life. Um, and and the, the emergence of the Delta variant in, in early 2021 really scuppered that notion um, and, you know, delayed all sorts of you know, ideas of return to normality. And it seems to me the Biden administration is sort of trying to now pr pr promote this, you know, return to normalcy. But as Andy said, it's some, some places have, have, have forever resented the idea of not being normal. Um, and then you've got those communities who are still sometimes for good reason, you know, for, for, for genuine health concerns who are still ultra cautious. And then um, I, I rather liked Andy's phrase, virtue signaling, that you just appearing to be ultra cautious, um, you know, that you're still taking this thing very seriously. But that's again, you know, it has economic implications and, and in terms of, you know, people just returning to the normal work, normal working patterns and, and, and all that comes with that in terms of economic activity and your local, you know, your local sandwich shop at lunchtime. And, and um, yeah. Yeah. Can I just okay. jump no. in just yeah. a note on the economic front? I mean, the news on the economic uh, statistics for the end of the year are amazingly good, actually. This is an interesting, uh, you know, again, another weird contrast because you have, you know, the best GDP growth in the U.S. for 35 years, I think 1984, uh, the best unemployment uh, reduction right, in a year since I think the 1960s, you know, mm -hmm. huge number of jobs created. Now, obviously, you're starting from a low base. These, uh, you know, compared to 2020, everything's going to look good. But that said, you know, these are impressive figures, you know, where it runs into people's, you know, continuing malaise, not to uh, put a Carterism on poor President Biden, uh, is, you know, that inflation is high, there are supply chain issues, some things are occasionally hard to get, certainly things are more expensive, and you would expect that, right? Gasoline, you know, is at a sort of a price that we saw in 2015-ish, right? It's It's been this high before, but given how cheap it was last year, it seems like a lot. Um, you know, there are some other things that are harder to get. Uh, we haven't had, we didn't have the big Christmas meltdown that some people were predicting in terms of, you know, you can't get your toys. Santa has been canceled, right? Um, but, you know, the economic, all this good economic news, and it is, you know, objectively good news. Uh, I don't think the Biden administration is getting full credit for that in part because, uh, you know, inflation is eating away at people's wage growth. Um, 
and which has been real as well. And, you know, the notion of just sort of this concept of inflation, which, of course, has been talked up quite a lot uh, by the president's opponents in Congress and elsewhere uh, as, you know, something that is the, uh, the Achilles heel of the uh, Biden recovery. You know, that also has made it harder for him to pass some of the larger spending plans that are part of his agenda. Right. He was successful, you know, with some early big legislative packages that I'm, so I'm sure we'll talk about has run aground. Uh, in Congress since, uh, but in part, it's easier to make the case against the continue the rest of the Biden agenda because it's expensive, and you know inflation makes that harder to sell. Yeah, inflation's at its highest for forty years now, um, and in, in, I think for, for a number of years now, sort of inflation hawks have, have it's been the you know they've they've raised false flags so to speak in terms of predicting inflation, and so there may have been almost a bit of complacency that inflation wasn't just around the corner, but there, there's real inflation. I mean, this isn't you know we're talking about inflation in the UK economy as well. This isn't a, a US. Um, a, a, this is not American exceptionalism. Um, <laughs> But I think there, there are certainly arguments that some of the uh, pandemic responses have actually have contributed in some way to inflation by oddly in terms of some of the, the very expansive support packages which were put in place to you know help people through the pandemic but that's created it's led to this jump in demand and and not quite enough supply and sort of economics 101 tells us still tells us that when demand outstrips supply then one potential consequence is inflation i think there are other factors as well in terms of energy prices and uh, which are indep you know, independent stuff going on there in terms of, 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 of rising costs. But um, I'm certainly not laying inflation at the administration's door, but I think there's a credible argument from opponents that um, some of what we might, re some people, some on the left might regard as, you know, or centre left even as being, having been some of the successes of the administration early on, uh, have had sort of economic downsides too. Okay, that's great. Thank you. And I, I guess just may, may, maybe on that note, just trying to think of, you know, something that uh, like a bit of a good news story, maybe uh, that, that's reasonably unconditional and that's, you know, got a bit of a bipartisan kind of, you know, uh, twist to it. I mean, the infrastructure bill, Alex, is that something that we can kind of go? Yeah, okay. To his credit, you know, he's on the White House lawn. There's a photo op. They have to have uh, extra seats because there's so many people from across the other can we look at that and go okay that's that's a win and especially these days when when there aren't many bipartisan wins what t tell us what's good about that yeah i mean if, if you were going to sort of look at the two big wins for the and there's been more than two but sort of the two big legislative packages uh, in the first year the first would be the american rescue plan which wasn't bipartisan that was a, a democrats package um and then you would have the infrastructure bill which I've, and you'll correct me i think there were how many 17 senators 19, Republican, I think. 19 Republican senators. Yeah. And actually, a, a, a smaller number in, in the House who voted in favour, but a, a crucial number, actually, because there were a handful of Democrats. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, perhaps being the most high profile, who, who didn't vote in favour of the infrastructure bill. Uh, for Not because they opposed this bill, but for complicated bargaining reasons, really, uh, which we might get to. Um, it, you know, uh, um, my experience of American infrastructure over the last few years is that there's there's quite a lot to be done, uh, uh, to be honest, in terms of just, I mean, what, what's meant by infrastructure, of course, is is is, is perhaps is, is a much, there's a much broader framework for what we mean by that than simply building roads and bridges, which I think you know, the old fashioned idea of infrastructure is, is you know, you know, those big physical structures. And I mean, the administration in some ways has, 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 has has tried to to expand the definition of infrastructure, um, but yeah, this broadband and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yes, that's certainly a success. It's it's how long, you know, when anything implemented as a consequence of that becomes evidence to the public, and how any uh, sort of um, how that feeds back into the the political process is, is yet to be determined. It's something they can tout, but whether it's, it, it, it's, you know, it doesn't have an immediate effect in terms of improving people's lives. Yeah, the delay in pushing that through, partly because of the intra-party politics among Democrats, uh, you know, as Alex mentioned, sort of the, the leftist wing of the House um, was desperate for sort of the other half of the infrastructure package, the so-called human infrastructure package, which is now the, the Build Back Better bill, right? When uh, President Biden announced this back in, I think, April, 
you know, is a $4 trillion sort of almost conceived as a single package where some was sort of regular infrastructure, bridges, roads, airports, including things like broadband. But then the other part was also touted as infrastructure, but human infrastructure, childcare, education support, nutrition, um, uh, some climate change uh, spending as well um, to combat global warming. So you have, um, you know, those wound up being split. Uh, the part that, you know, the uh, Ocasio-Cortez's of the world really cared about was the latter part, the human services part. Um, but the part that you could get Republican votes on was the, you know, uh, physical infrastructure part. And so, you know, there was some effort to sort of move them in tandem through the House and the Senate. Uh, the House, you don't really need any Republican votes. But of course, the Senate, given its rules of debate, uh, either you need 60 votes or you have to put it into a different sort of legislative package um, that has some limitations. Uh, I don't think we need to spend 20 minutes on reconciliation, but uh, it does make the job of uh, you know the party leaders harder um, in terms of what you can actually put in a package that will pass with 51 votes. So it is, uh, you know, on the one hand, you, you could argue this was an easy lift, right? Donald Trump promised infrastructure reform for four years. It became a running joke. I don't know if your listeners, you know, tuned into Infrastructure Week almost every week. It became sort of the thing that they would roll out and then never follow up on. And there, there were Democratic votes for that, you know, even during the Trump administration. So Biden, in a way, just sort of picked up that mantle and said, OK, let's let's do it. And, you know, I don't know if you uh, saw in the UK that he went to Pittsburgh recently to uh, uh, tout the infrastructure bill uh, and a bridge fell down that morning. Um, it was actually... You know, I'm not saying there's anything there, but uh, nobody was hurt, luckily. Uh, but yes, some cars went fell off a bridge. Literally, it, it collapsed under them. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's definitely needed. Uh, question is, having been delayed from April to November, you know, kind of held up by the, the left wing of the party in an effort to, uh, uh, you know, leverage the other part of the president's agenda. You know, will that stuff be built in time to help Democrats and the fall of 2022, right? Moderates in the party were very angry at the left wing of the party for having delayed what was to them so clearly an easy win. Yeah, that's absolutely spot on. Thank you. And it, I think it, it, it just kind of leads to, there are so many other examples, I guess maybe one that's worthy of, of uh, some of our attention anyway is, um, like I was thinking about immigration in terms of as an example of, you know, you have the kind of I don't know if they're quite easy wins, but you know the the, the kind of the the good style routes. You know, early days, executive actions, bish bosh. You know, you have the pen and you have the photo op and you have the things changing. And you know, Biden comes in uh, promising to 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 kind of um, set up a more humane immigration system. Um, and there's a kind of a um, a whole list of things that, that that he plans to do. So you have the short term stuff where he's rolling back the the uh, plans for the border wall. Uh, he's He's ending the Trump era, very controversial travel bans, blah, blah. You know, that's quick and easy and straightforward and, and a win to his base and, and, you know, probably the right thing for the country, etc. Then there's the kind of the, the more medium term stuff, you know, with, you know, what to do with the many millions of undocumented um people that are already in the United States. So that's more, I suppose, kind of a, a legislative path. And then you have the kind of long-term stuff, like what um, uh, Vice President Harris seems to be kind of um, tasked with to kind of figure out, you know, what are the root causes? How can America help to, to, to prevent that? So the whole kind of cycle doesn't begin in the first place. And I was thinking, is he... <sighs> The long-term wins are, are, are really important for, 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 you know, the country and the future and humanity and everything. But I mean, there has to be a kind of a, you know, front page headline grabbing stuff as well, I think, in order to win the next election to make sure that your long-term plans can actually work. So I, I guess maybe this is one for Andy because, you know, you're, you're um, the, the kind of the executive action uh, maestro. But sh should he be using that? that route a bit more maybe or what are the kind of the problems with um just signing off the executive actions for, for the kind of um you know high profile issues that that those on the left of his party for example would be very concerned about yeah well immigration has been an interesting uh, little case study of uh, a surprising amount of policy continuity actually across the two administrations um not necessarily on purpose by the Biden administration, but kind of forced by events, uh, as you alluded to before. Um, 
so the Biden administration certainly came in. Some of its very early executive actions, it's, it, you know, he's issued 70 something executive orders this year, a lot of memoranda, proclamations, all kinds of stuff to kind of get the, the executive establishment moving in a different direction. A lot of these, of course, were canceling out Trump uh, executive actions uh, in order to sort of reset the bureaucracy and to put in place a whole new set of rules that would, you know, embody very different policy preferences uh, on the environment, on immigration, education, civil rights, what have you. Uh, on the immigration side, right, so he canceled a lot of the Trump stuff, the so-called travel ban, um, and you know, tried to put some, uh, you know, he created a task force to help reunite some of the children who were separated at the border under Trump policies. Um, uh, but what quickly happened was that uh, people in, in Central and uh, South America who, you know, you know, quite legitimately are hoping to, you know, find a better life in the U.S., you know, started, they hear the rhetoric and they are suddenly hopeful, right? Hey, this guy's not a jerk. Maybe we can get in and you know reboot our lives. Try to flee, you know, the economic turmoil and uh, and political violence in some parts of uh, South America. So, you know, that in the end is what Vice President Harris has been tasked with to try to you know solve all of the problems in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, that is not likely to happen quickly. Uh, kind of a thankless job. Anyway, the. Uh, but in the short term, you know, the Biden administration found itself kind of overwhelmed, right? It was just numbers at the border. And so it wound up having to use some of the same facilities, uh, detention facilities, frankly, uh, along the border that the Trump administration had used. So the pictures didn't look too much better, right, than they did. And uh, the president's allies were pretty quickly disillusioned. Uh, one of his uh, efforts, the so-called remain in Mexico mm -hmm. policy, uh, which was which he did try to reverse. This is something that had required uh, all uh, people uh, applying, for example, for asylum in the United States, which, by the way, is international law, which is, uh, you know, something we should be obeying and that Biden certainly promised more fealty to than did President Trump. Uh, you know, the Remain in Mexico pro policy would, you know, force you to wait in Mexico for a decision in U.S. tribunals regarding your asylum application. And that takes forever. Right. And so we're basically just outsourcing the problem to Mexico. Um, which was fine with Trump, less fine with Biden, but the U.S. courts actually held up his reversal on procedural grounds, uh, and so we're still pushing through that. The other issue in the, you know, the pandemic allowed the Trump administration to impose restrictions that it had sort of fantasized about but wasn't able to impose earlier uh, in terms of saying, oh, everybody coming in from over the Mexican border is in fact a, a health risk. You know, there's a very powerful law called the Public Health Service Act, which enabled the Trump administration to effectively declare just that and to really clamp down on entrance, legal entrance. Um, and that, you know, has not been lifted by the Biden administration, despite quite a lot of pressure. Uh, he did lift a cap on refugees, uh, but originally had actually maintained the Trump cap, a lot of pressure from the left. So, you know, it's been a mixed bag. Uh, and I think partly responsive to just, you know, the sheer number of bodies at the border. He's been trying to to deal with that in a sort of triage way, but not in a way that has uh, satisfied certainly those who are, you know, in favor of increased levels of immigration, including some in the business community, by the way. Uh, and also, uh, you know, hasn't really allowed him to get a longer term agenda off the ground. There's a legislative proposal that would you know, attempt to, to fix some of these. But, uh, you know, getting to your original point, a lot of it is going to wind up in regulation. It's going to wind up in a longer term process. So these things take a while to get through the rulemaking process, and then they take a while to sort of turn into reality um, and uh, to surmount the inevitable court challenges that will come up. And so, you know, in a weird way, it's it's odd to be sitting here in early 2022 and saying, well, these are actually only going to happen if Biden gets reelected in 2024. Uh, but there's something to that. Right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, just to uh, piggyback onto that for a second, I think the, clearly the human consequences of this are the, are the most important feature, but the, the politics are just pretty brutal for the Biden administration in as much as you know, they, they're getting attacked from all sides. Uh, um, the, the, clearly, the the the, you know, the Trumpian wing of American politics just talks about chaos and crisis at the border. Uh, looks, um, you know, to, to the fact that there are more 
people who are trying to get into the US and uh, and sort of more liberal left critics um, worry about the, the the fact that there were more deportations and expulsions, more arrests at the southwest border in 2021 than there have been in over a decade. So um, nobody's happy, uh, including the administration, I would <laughs> guess. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, certainly the the, the pledge to get rid of the to 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 end and terminate the Remain in Mexico program was an important, you know, uh, part of Biden's agenda, and as uh, and as Sandy says, has been thwarted by the courts, and, um, uh, and the courts do. I think as uh, as you and I have written about Claudia in terms of DACA, which was a, a, an Obama-era executive action, uh, which uh, the Trump administration tried to reverse, and that was blocked by the courts. So, you know, so the liberals cheered that, um, but not cheering uh, the the, uh, uh, the the rebuttal of the, the Biden administration's efforts to get rid of Remain in Mexico. And I think they, they've created a little bit of a rod for them back. They've, they've said, you know, promised trying to process all claims uh, for those who are stuck in Mexico within six months. Um, but that just seems given the numbers involved, it just seems extraordinarily unlikely that they're going to be able to do that. So um, the administration has been slightly odd in terms of over-promising, under-promising. I think we talked about the vaccine rollout. They set themselves quite a low bar in terms of when they came in, in terms of the number of vaccinations they don't get done quickly and at other points in time have over-promised um, uh, what, what, they, what they can achieve. And I think that's the case in terms of processing these, these asylum claims. And I think that actually just reminds me of something um, that, that I came across the other day, the idea, you know, again, it's back to just, I'm a bit obsessed with messaging these days because, you know, there, there are so many crises going on and if one doesn't get, you know, the message out clearly, then others like, you know, we saw this with, with Obama in 2009 and the economic crisis that he faced and he didn't, you know, he wasn't great at messaging once he was actually in office or is, is, is thought not to have been, and, you know, the Tea Party kind of grabbed the microphone and don't give it back. And there's, I think there's, there's kind of some of that around Biden and particularly with immigration. You know, if you look at those on the left in his own party kind of accuse him of just being, you know, uh, Trump in a different suit kind of thing. And and then you look at the kind of the, the other side of things and there's a there's this sense that, oh, he's 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 an open borders president, which he categorically isn't. And so he's he's none of the things that his opponents are saying that he is. And yet it's hard to kind of push past that to find out exactly what it is that, that he's about in immigration. And I think that's something that kind of comes up, you know, in, in, in more than one realm. And the, the other um, day I was listening to um, something with, with Elaine Kamark at the, um, the Brookings Institute, and she said something that actually made me laugh out loud, but I thought there was real resonance there. Her quote was, she said, Republicans are very good at making Democrats look nuts. And just <laughs> that notion of the kind of, when there is a, a genuine argument to be made that it just kind of gets lost in the hyperbole and the, and, and the social media drama, of course. Um, I was thinking as well, uh, I think voting rights is something that is probably worth um, a mention maybe in this regard as well, as in it's it's incredibly important and it's been a kind of a complicated um, ride with it. Um, if I just, uh, obviously I'm mindful people listening might know the, the, the full details of this, but basically 2021, um, you have 52 restrictive voter laws passed in various states. So this includes things like limiting options to vote, undermining local election officials' ability to mind elections. Um, there's one I found, a, a Georgia law, um, which specifically criminalized handing out water to voters standing in long lines. You know, really sort of seems like kind of petty unpleasant kind of uh, approach to things um and i wondered in 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 regard to the 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 um the, the two voting rights um acts that have sort of uh, come about or tried to come about in recent times maybe i'll put that to, to andy um what can biden be sort of credited with or again you know a situation beyond his control what how much credit can we give him for, for effort here if not achievement yeah well, I guess to Elaine Kamark's uh, point, I would say sometimes the Democrats are nuts. Uh, but the, you know, if you want the the purest undistilled uh, or uh, you know sort of evidence of nuttiness in American politics right now, it is about the 2020 election still and the the, the former guy, as President Biden calls him, uh, continuing to rant about uh, this. We're seeing you know with the January 6th Commission, you know, some investigation into, you know, what was going on in November and December uh, 2020 in the White House uh, that led, of course, to the, uh, you know, uh, as the president declared, I mean, this is the, you know, the weird thing about Trump's messaging, he's always out front, right? It's not a secret conspiracy. He just says it. I, Mike Pence should have overturned the election results. Um, 
Now, the fact that Mike Pence had no power to do that is irrelevant to the belief system of many folks who have decided, you know, again, as sort of a fundamental article of faith, you know, vaccines are bad and the election was stolen, you know, by China, by, you know, uh, apparently Venezuelan dictator Hugo Chavez, who died a few years ago, by the way. <laughs> um, you know, there's, you know, interested readers can find a 38 slide PowerPoint presentation that was briefed at the White House and in the Republican leadership in Congress. Uh, and it's just it's wacko. Um, there's no other word for it. It's it, it's it's just. 38 lies. Uh, well, actually, there's more than one lie per slide, so I don't know what the actual count is. Um, so but the problem is, right, that then. You know, Republican office holders, especially, you know, have to sort of react to their base, which believes that this, you know, that the election is somehow open to, to theft. And so they've begun to, you know, crack down on mail in voting, for example. Um, you know, as you say, you know, sort of early voting, waiting, you know, things about waiting in line. Now, I mean, in defense, right, there are, you know, rules in lots of states, even about giving stuff to voters in line. Right. The idea is you're not supposed to bribe voters. Now, whether you could bribe them with a 16 ounce bottle of water, I'm, I'm pretty dubious about that. But, you know, the uh, you know, and of course, the answer is really, well, have enough polling places open that you don't have to wait in line for five hours. That might be nice. Uh, well, how could you do that? Uh, well, we could have more mail-in voting, right? As in, of course, the pandemic, we had very high turnout, 66% turnout, highest in 100 years in the United States in 2020. That's not an amazingly impressive figure internationally, but again, very high turnout despite the pandemic, again, largely down to mail-in voting. Uh, if turnout is a threat to your political party, as some Republican officials, including the former president, have said, then, you know, figuring out ways to, to limit that might be a plan. So Democrats, in turn, uh, went to, you know, kind of their wish list for a while, right? In 2013, the Supreme Court had undermined parts of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, making it hard for the federal government to sort of pre-clear uh, changes in voting procedures at the state level, right? So then you were going to have to go, you know, to sue a state after that if it was doing something that would be racially discriminatory. Um, Supreme Court undermined that even a little bit in a, a later, more recent case. And so Democrats sort of turned to these two big bills dealing with voting rights, trying effectively to uh, create a set of federal minimum requirements. Um, and that's been attacked as sort of a federal takeover of the, uh, of the election system, which traditionally has been extraordinarily decentralized. Right. Um, and so, you know, that is possible. The Constitution says that Congress can set laws governing federal elections. That's not a, a constitutional issue, uh, but there is some resonance in sort of the state pushback uh, about, you know, big arm of the federal government is going to uh, tell us how to act. Um, so that that has run up against. Right. Um, you know, in turn, efforts, uh, you know, the need to get 60 Republican votes in the, uh, sorry, 60 votes total in the Senate. Since the Democrats only have 50 votes, 51 if you count the vice president, you need, you know, some Republicans to come on. Board. And that has been very hard, right? Driven by their base, driven by, again, some, a modicum of reasonable uh, objections. There has in the last week or two been some discussion among some of the same Republicans who helped push the infrastructure bill through about some more modest reforms uh, that might look at, uh, you mentioned that, uh, you know, some of these bills in the states have made it easier for uh, partisan legislatures to take over a voting process, even after the fact. That to me is actually the most problematic part of these bills. Is that you might actually have, you know, pressure from um, allies on one side or the other to uh, you know, kind of take over the process. This would be linked to uh, a fix of the Electoral Count Act, which was from the late 19th century and is the law under which President Trump and his lawyers, I use the word lawyers advisedly here, uh, they have law degrees, I think, uh, but they advised, you know, again, they're giving Vice President Pence uh, advice that, you know, under this law, he can indeed overturn the election results. Um, so there's some, a lot of that law was passed sort of, uh, that would take its own podcast, but it's uh, it's kind of a mess. So there is this sort of smaller package that may or may not go anywhere, but certainly the bigger package became the litmus test for uh, black voters and black elected officials uh, to sort of see, does the Biden administration care 
about our mm -hmm. concerns. You know, that's a very, very loyal Democratic voting bloc, an important one. Um, you know, and so, you know, President Biden did want to be responsive, but and he, you know, made a, a speech that actually, you know, went so far as to compare opponents of the new proposed law to segregationists, um, which didn't go over so well among some uh, Republicans, some of whom, you know, managed to, you know, sort of be shocked, offended. I'm very offended. And some of whom I think might have actually been offended uh, and, and not quite so hypocritically. So you have a, uh, you know, so he tried, right? He made a very strong statement, uh, but you know, this is the same problem he has with his big social spending bill, math, right? There are 50 senators. They don't all agree on the same stuff. And you can't push through an ambitious agenda on margins that are that slim in the legislature. It's just not going to work. So, you know, again, there are some things you can do through executive action. You can push, um, you know, more regulation through the Justice Department, for example, and how it oversees uh, election administration, but you know, I don't see the larger bills moving through. Maybe there's some hope, you know, to move back towards a, you know, a smaller package that would address some of the most egregious issues that we saw in 2020, or I should say in 2020, but also in, you know, the reaction to 2020, uh, which again is mostly sort of whipped up, uh, based on very little evidence. Yeah. I'm just to say, I'm add to that a little bit. I think again, it's an, another issue where Biden's got slightly the administration. At least a few weeks ago, was getting slightly squeezed with with pressure from from the left. That, that there was a feeling that Biden wasn't being voluble enough on the issue, and, and that, that, that people would you know would like him to, to to speak out more. As Andy says, he's he has spoken and with 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 real passion uh, in recent times. Uh, he gave a, a when he went to Georgia to uh, sort of really begin this effort. At, that putting pressure on on lawmakers um uh sort of one of the rock stars of democratic party politics uh, in georgia stacey abrams um uh they didn't meet and you know they tried to paper this over by saying there was a sort of scheduling mess up but you know you sort of think well I, you know I'll, I'll rearrange my schedule to meet the president um you would think would be possible uh, uh so that that was not a good look even though they they did try to to, to sort of undo the damage caused by that sort of making not a public rift but um and, and without getting lost in the weeds uh, this is an area where you did you know you you, you need the supermajority to get it through senate there was an effort to carve out uh, and to say we don't need the supermajority we can just do this with 51 votes um but then uh there were the Two very famous now Democratic senators, <laughs> Kristen Sinema from Arizona and Joe Manchin from uh, West Virginia, wouldn't go along with that idea. And so, um, yeah, I think the the big plans are are uh, sort of uh, dead on arrival now. I think in terms of any further legislative progress. Yeah, I would yeah, say big uh, plans by the way, dead on arrival. I think that's yeah. Well, mm -hmm. the filibuster question, just to note, right? Uh, there have been carve outs in the past, one of mm -hmm. which is now for uh, nominations uh, at all levels of the judiciary and across uh, the executive branch. So it wasn't entirely fanciful to think that maybe you could carve out something for voting rights. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely, you know, and, you know, again, I, I mentioned and cinema are obviously the public faces of this, but there are some folks, I think, mm -hmm. even on the Democratic side who are not that upset. Um, to lose, you know, to hold on to the filibuster on the assumption that they may well lose the Senate in, you know, the 22 mid 2020, 2022 midterms. Um, now, of course, uh, you know, we've seen uh, Senator McConnell, right? If he's a majority leader again, there's perhaps nothing to stop him from shoving through filibuster reform. Uh, you know, uh, though it might not be in his interest to do so in a democratic administration since he won't really need to, right? There's not going to be anything he wants to actually pass uh, with 51 votes at that point. Okay, that's great. That's super comprehensive. I'm just I'm just mindful of the time. Um, I want to save the last five minutes just for, I just want to put a kind of a closing question to both of you. So we'll, we'll, we'll block off the last five minutes for that. Um, just 
looking through the, the 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 student queries and they kind of tie in with with my final questions for you both so just before we get to that just one point on one of the the, the key things that that um biden ran on was was racial justice um it's it's a huge topic in itself i think we've gone to it in terms of kind of voting rights are gone to it in in some ways and um, with regard to voting rights and also um pandemic management of course there are other routes as well to discuss this you know uh, the climate crisis would be one of them but i think that's literally a whole other podcast because it's so huge um so one route to to um a sort of a nod i think that is both style style and substance um in relation to biden um kind of um you know maybe scoring on on the racial justice Justice Front is his opportunity now to nominate um, somebody to the Supreme Court. So again, for listeners who might not be um, familiar, this is a, a very recent kind of development where Justice Stephen Breyers, who's now 83, has announced his retirement. Um, he's going to be out uh, pretty soon, I think. And so this means that Joe Biden has the, you know, the, the um, extremely important opportunity to replace um, Stephen Breyers with um like like with like in terms of you know where they kind of sit on the the um the the, the spectrum but most importantly he campaigned in 2020 and said that if the opportunity arose that he would um appoint or nominate rather um an african-american woman which is his plan so just a, maybe a quick thought from each of you on how, how's that going to play out we saw how how kind of vicious really i think things were really on on trump's watch with his nominations is this going to be the sort of the same in reverse or or w w what are your thoughts andy maybe go too quickly first um well this is a promise that uh the now president made when he was running in the democratic primaries back in 2020 uh as a way of trying to shore up support uh, among black voters in the primary electorate uh and so he said yes i will i will appoint a black woman to the supreme court uh the attack there i think from republicans will be not so much on the individual nominee because she is going to be a qualified nominee uh but you know you've already seen the attacks on biden for you know effectively preemptive affirmative action how can you say in advance that the most qualified nominee in the whole universe is a black woman um and of course you know it's pretty hard to argue that every single nominee up to you know 1967 uh was a white male um Apparently that was the case, though, and uh, you have an interest. You know, so, so this dynamic is, is, again, kind of fake. President Reagan promised during the general election mm -hmm. in 1980 that he would nominate a woman. He held a press conference to make that announcement. Um, Donald Trump had a literal list of nominees, uh, you know, the vast bulk of whom were white males and mostly conservative, all conservative, actually, all handpicked by an outside uh, group. So, you know, the Supreme Court is a political institution. Uh, its members are not partisan politicians in quite the same way as elected officials, but I don't think we should be shocked at the fact that, you know, that the appointments are used in a way as, uh, you know, sops to a given constituency. Um, that said, it's, it's far past time to have a black woman on the court who can bring a different set of views to, you know, the legal issues that smart. It's not going to change the makeup of the court in terms of the liberal conservative balance in any real sense, uh, given Justice Breyer's, uh, you know, own leanings. But it is a, a chance to, uh, you know, sort of uh, have an impact on descriptive representation that can be kind of important. And that actually, by the way, we haven't mentioned it, but it's something that the Biden administration has been very good on, actually starting with his choice of vice president, but also in his cabinet and uh, uh, largely his White House staffing positions as well. He has made a real effort to diversify the face of American government. Yeah, I think that's all, all, all true, very true. I, I think at the moment, I'm not really sure how this is going to play out um, in terms of the the, the post-nomination politics um, on the Republican side, at least, in as much as... So the stakes are low. Uh, is 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 uh, isn't true. But in the sense of it, it's, it's not going to change the balance. It's still going to be a, a sort of six three, five and a half, three and a half conservative uh, majority on the court. Um, so whether the Republicans sort of want to go to war on this, um, I, I think as Andy says, uh, there may there certainly be some preemptive criticisms about the or, or the nature 
Biden's preemptive judgment about who's going to be nominated, but then going after the individual, I think, might actually be quite risky um, uh, for Republicans. And then uh, it's it may not be worth it. I, I don't expect many votes uh, for whoever's nominated on the Republican side, but whether we get a um, uh, you know a, a, a really hostile environment um, is unclear. I, I think, on the other hand, it's the conservative resentment to the way. As, as, as perceived by many conservatives, at least the way Brett Kavanaugh's nomination was handled, I think there is some lingering resentment that that, that, that Kavanaugh was unfairly treated. We didn't debate whether that's true or not. <laughs> uh, for those who aren't aware, there were sort of accusations from Brett Kavanaugh's past about uh, uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault, um, uh, unproven, um, which arose during his nomination hearings. And I think some conservatives are still quite angry about that. But whether that will manifest itself in, in attacks on the individual, uh, I, I think is unlikely. So um, assuming that there are 50 Democratic senators, um, which has uh, um, been thrown into some doubt over the last day, um, then um, uh, able to vote, that is, then I, I think this will go through, assuming that something untoward doesn't get revealed and then, you know, assuming the vetting is done properly and then whoever is nominated is, is uh, doesn't doesn't run into trouble. Right. Just very, very quickly, the uh, this sort of uh, I think Republicans will, will in a way, you know, want to vote for a black woman because mm -hmm. the uh, sort of where the uh, um, where their attacks on issues of race have been have largely been at the state level attacks on so-called critical race theory, mm -hmm. you know, efforts to shape local curricula to remove anything that might offend, you know, poor young children who, you know, are uh, unable to deal with the complexities of America's very troubled racial past. Um, apparently, we need to protect them from this. And there's, you know, we're sort of uh, moving into a weird phase of recommending book burning again, which, uh, again, perhaps a... Uh, that wouldn't be good for global warming either. So we yeah. should uh, wrap that into that discussion. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So I'm 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 mindful of the time. So we, we just one final question for 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 both of you. Um, sort of. I, I think that there's still so many things that we, we haven't covered, but I think we've done reasonably well. I've just sort of jotted down. We've had a mention at least of, of, of COVID management, of the economy, of immigration, of the problems around messaging and, and getting one's message out clearly. Um, just a, a quick mention of January 6th, the importance of voting rights and what might uh, come of the Supreme Court nomination. So bearing in mind all the gaps that we haven't filled today, we may have to just do this all again another time to fill those in. Um, my final question to both of you would be if you had Joe Biden's ear today with the 2022 uh, midterms kind of looming and all the challenges that he and his party faces, um, what would you say to him? Alec, go to you first. Um, words of wisdom would you impart? Uh, well, on a practical level, I mean, I think if they want to get something more of something of substance achieved, I would. And I know this is nothing new in this and people have said this and it may, it may lead to nowhere, but if you want to get something that we, one of the things we've not talked about much is the, the so-called, we, we sort of hinted at this program called Build Back Better, which was this human infrastructure plan that uh, we, we talked about and certainly would include, has included things like a, um, a, a big uh, um, a continuation of a, a temporary expansion of child tax credits, which sort of reduced poverty amongst children by half over the over the last year. So, if you if you try and rescue some of that, this is again something that's run afoul uh, of, of the the senators we mentioned earlier, Kristen Sinema and, and Joe Manchin, who uh, sort of seem to be playing hardball with the administration. Uh, I would just say, what do you want? Uh, what can we get past? Um, It'll infuriate uh, someone on the liberal wing of the party, um, but I think if they can rescue anything from that in the next six weeks or so, that would be uh, uh, something to do. More generally, I, 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 I mean, Claudia, you mentioned messaging earlier uh, in terms of you know the in the, the way that the administration is getting its messaging done. Or I would say not getting its messaging done. Now, I'm, I'm slightly sceptical, I guess that better messaging uh, will will dramatically improve the administration's standing in some ways it's you know the bad news maybe doesn't always come from the messaging it's because it, there, are, there are more fundamental problems than, than simply messaging but the, the, uh, 
the, the caricature of this as a, as a sort of slightly bumbling White House um, does, I think, have some merit. Bumbling, bumbling may not be quite the right word, but uh, it doesn't seem a very dynamic White House um, uh, uh, at the moment. And uh, I think that I'm not quite sure how you go about improving that. Um, uh, we've, we've not talked much about Vice President Harris and her role in this. Um, uh, and maybe uh, one try and stop some of the rumours about and sort of unhappiness uh, in terms of what her role has been and, 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 and give a perhaps a more prominent role, but certainly uh, a more unified face from the administration. Um, but my main thing would be, would be that they are almost certainly going to lose a majority in at least one chamber, very possibly both chambers, um, uh, at, you know, in November. Uh, so they've, they've not got long uh, to, to get stuff done. So get cracking, yeah. Joe Biden might be the yeah. um, yeah. sticker from Alex. Yeah. So okay, I want to... fabulous. Thank you. And Andy? Yep. Yeah. So I think, you know, uh, you know, to forestall the uh, the angry emails from Professor Ashby, which are going to be coming forth, because <laughs> we haven't mentioned foreign policy at all, really. Um, you know, I, I'm just going to bring up uh, a couple things. Afghanistan, for example, um, where, and I, I, again, the policy decision to, to withdraw U.S. forces from Afghanistan was, in a weird way, bipartisan. There's actually widely supported in the U.S. It was something that uh, former President Trump had pushed hard for, uh, in fact, on an even more accelerated timetable. Uh, but the again, the, uh, the implementation of that withdrawal uh, looked terrible. It was terrible for, for thousands of Afghanis. Um, and so, you know, it's sort of one of those areas, I think the sort of the, again, we talked at the very beginning about the, the sort of uh, the punch to Biden's credibility and sort of veneer of confidence uh, that the uh, the uh, variants over the summer, the Delta variant first sort of uh, inflicted on him. I think Afghanistan also added to that this notion that, well, they said they knew what they were doing. He kept saying this was not like the fall of Saigon in 1975. But look, there's a helicopter with people hanging off of it. You know, it's a um, it looked terrible. It kind of was terrible. And uh, his his hope, I think, and, and he may be correct in calculating the overall costs and benefits. But um, I think what Biden does need to achieve again is, is to bring back this notion of normalcy and competency. The first may be beyond him to the degree, again, that, you know, events prevent, you know, us returning to pre-pandemic life in the way that people sort of took would be the case from his election to start with, right? This notion that, oh, we elected Biden, we got rid of Trump, things are fine. Uh, that obviously hasn't been entirely the case. He can't do everything about that. But he can, I think, as Alex said, you know, turn his attention to sort of small bites at the apple, which may restore some sense of, you know, lower the drama level. You know, we can pass, again, sort of a, a minimal Voting Rights Act on a bipartisan basis, perhaps. We can pass pieces of the Build Back Better Act that are acceptable to the sort of the, the, the swing voters in the Senate. Um, and at the very least, you can put Republicans on record against things like a child tax credit uh, and the like, which are actually pretty popular. Part of the problem with the Build Back Better bill is that whenever it's talked about in the media, it's talked about as this $2 trillion bill. That's the only shorthand you get. You don't get any idea of what's actually in it. Uh, and so if you separate those things out, maybe you can get a little more there. Um, you know, being seen to deal with the issue of inflation. Again, the economy is not under the president's control, but perhaps again, more messaging. You're beginning to see that already on infrastructure. Uh, and then lastly, right, uh, we mentioned in passing January 6th, but, um, you know, I think to the degree that Republicans continue to support effectively armed insurrection, uh, that's something you can run on as a Democrat, right? The, the January 6th committee, um, you know, which is being led uh, in a moral sense by Liz Cheney, right? Not exactly someone 10 years ago I would have expected to be a hero of the American left. Um, you know, but not just of the left. This is actually, I would say, a hero of American democracy, small d, right now. Um, and so, you know, if they are going to be holding hearings, as they promise, if they're going to be making, you know, uh, I think, you know, it's a little too much to hope perhaps for sort of a Watergate moment you know, as you look at, you know, the hearings that were in the summer of 1973, really galvanizing opinion. Um, but, you know, to the degree that you can convince voters generally, uh, the country, frankly, is not in safe hands in a Trumpist 
Republican Party. Maybe you can carve people on the Republican side away from Trump. That would be a plus. Uh, maybe it has electoral impacts, but it is, I think, pretty substantively important as well. Uh, so in a weird way, I say this partly flippantly. Um, you know, maybe Biden should lobby Twitter to let Donald Trump back on the platform because, frankly, uh, the more people hear him, the more they dislike him. And that actually might be beneficial for Biden. Okay, so on that note of leaving Trump back on Twitter, let's all just go in and, and, and reflect <laughs> on that. Before we, before we sign off, I just want to say a, a really sincere thank you to both of you for giving up so much of your, your time. I, I know your, 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 your days are extremely packed, so thank you. Much, much appreciated. So much that we didn't get to. We barely touched foreign policy. We didn't go to climate. There's, there's just other podcasts in there. So rather than trying to cram everything, I think we've done extremely well, actually, in, in, in highlighting some key issues. Um, and again, just a thank you to Jemima, who's going to produce this and put it all together and make it sound fabulous, etc. Um, and thank you to all the students who sent in their questions. I think we got to a lot of them. We didn't get to all of them, but that's fine. They'll, they'll, they'll be there for next time. Um, so, and thanks in advance to anybody who does listen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you enjoy discussions such as these, follow us on Spotify to keep up to date for more.